Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Sherjarko, and this episode is about Star Wars Episode Six: The Return of the Jedi, featuring the return of our good friend Anthony Pingera. Anthony is delightful, and we had so much fun recording this episode, but you may notice it's coming out a week late. We here at Pairing stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and decided to participate in podcast Blackout last week and delay this episode to make more space to support Black podcasters and creators. And I was even thinking about delaying this particular episode further since talking about Star Wars and wine feels so trivial right now when Black people are being killed all over the country. But I decided that it is right to have a discussion about these movies now because As you've probably seen in memes all across the internet, Star Wars depicts a rebellion and a struggle that reflects the struggle that Black Americans and allies are experiencing right now. I don't think that any of our listeners disagree, but if you love Star Wars and side with the rebels, but you're not supporting Black Lives Matter and the protests, maybe it's time for a little self-reflection. Even within this conversation about this movie, we address the ingrained racism that we as white people have had since children and need to dismantle. Racism and white supremacy are everywhere, and we all, especially those of us who are white, need to do some serious self-reflection and self-work and then turn that into action. You may be thinking, okay, Emma, get off your soapbox. I just want to hear about Ewoks, and I will in just a second, but I wanted to say this because it's important to address in every facet of our lives and society, including podcasts. I have a lot of work to do myself, and I want to be held accountable. In my life, on this podcast, in my career as a wine professional, and my career as an actor and creator. One small way that I've been taking action has been by donating to bail funds, civil rights organizations, and signing petitions. I'm putting links to some of these in the show notes, and if you feel able to donate, send me a screenshot of your donation at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll send you a wine fun fact or recommendation. I especially encourage you to donate to funds for Black trans women, given the recent transphobic comments of a certain formerly beloved children's book author, which I just... I, I think it goes without saying, but trans rights are human rights, Trans people are who they say they are, and I am deeply upset by JK's comments. But on a happier note, we wanted to welcome and thank our newest producer-level patron, Caitlin Van Horn, whom we would absolutely rescue from Jabba the Hutt, though she would probably have to rescue us. Caitlin joins our other producers, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, Allison Turi and Jacob Penfold, who would all bring some Montepulciano to the victory feast, and to our master producer, Michael Beck, who would make an even greater sommelier than C-3PO. It doesn't feel right to me to ask for new patrons right now, but I do have some public posts on the Patreon right now with links to some resources for supporting Black podcasters and Black winemakers, so please do check those out at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. And if you feel like being even more generous after donating to all the funds I talked about above and would like to become a pairing patron, I will, of course, be incredibly grateful, but I encourage you to use the money that you have to donate to those resources right now. 
One last and slightly more trivial thing before we dive in. There are a lot of spoilers for all of the Star Wars movies in this one, including Rogue One and Episodes 7, 8, and 9. So if you haven't seen those, maybe go check those out first. Without further ado, here is Episode 65, The Return of the Jedi with Anthony Pingera. want to note that I heroically finished Return of the Jedi last night in preparation for this episode. <laughs> I started it. We Well, we, we started it at like midnight yep. in bed. And I had court at eight and, in the morning. And I, Oof. yeah, and, and it was probably a bad idea. And so I definitely fell asleep. And I think the last thing I remember is Luke on Dagobah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, or, or oh, that's the, early. You fell asleep early. Yeah, I did. That's I did. right at the end of Act One. <laughs> but hey, it um, was late. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, it. That's absolutely. This is a great cold open into. Hello, we are going to be talking about Episode Six of Star Wars. More like <laughs> Episode Six, am I right? <laughs> Whoa! I'll show myself up. Yeah. Okay. Which is the third movie of the original trilogy, and we are thrilled to welcome back to pairing Anthony Pingera. Anthony, welcome Hi. back. Thank you for having burr, me. Burr, burr, burr. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited that you're here. We're so excited to have you back. So Ari reached out to me a while ago and told me that you would be interested in doing a Star Wars episode, and I was like, absolutely. Heck yes. Um, and then I did a post on Facebook being like, hey, friends, who wants to talk about Star Wars? And you were like, Return of the Jedi was my favorite as a kid. Yeah. So I, w- I wanted to ask you if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about what about this movie makes it your favorite Star Wars or made it your favorite Star Wars movie if it is no longer. I know, you know, I feel like favorite Star Wars movies are kind of always in flux. Um, they are. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would say yes. For my entire childhood and young adulthood, this was bar none my favorite Star Wars movie. Uh, I think awesome. I've seen it more than any of the other ones, just because mm. when I was a kid, I would just pop in Return of the Jedi and watch that. For sure. A, For you know, sure. As a standalone. Um, I think, you know, I last watched it in preparation for this episode after mm. last having watched it. I marathon the original trilogy in preparation for episode seven. Right. Um, and so that 2015, it's been a couple of years. And I think it doesn't have the same effect on me as it did, but that doesn't mean that I don't like it anymore. I uh-huh. think now as an adult, Empire Strikes Back has sort of taken, mm-hmm. it's sort of a sign of growing up that as you get older, I think you start to appreciate Empire Strikes Back more and start totally. to see the flaws in Return of the Jedi more. You know, um, I think... As a kid, I really enjoyed it because you have all of these very bizarre characters. You have, you know, a Jabba the Hutt, who's mm-hmm. like this very extreme criminal type. You can kind of root for him to be defeated. And then you get the Ewoks and Wicket and like all of the shenanigans there. Right. And then, of course, the, you know, then you have Ian McDermott playing the Emperor, mm-hmm. having so much fun being so evil. Such uh, a great villain. It, everything is just kind of like, I would say everything is like at a 10 mm-hmm. from the beginning of the movie. And totally. I think as like a a young kid with ADHD, I was like, this <laughs> is my movie. Yeah. <laughs> it is just like everything is happening constantly. Right, right. It is very fast. Like the pace of everything is much faster than the other films, I would say. I don't know. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's incredible. It's always wow. held a special place in my heart, but I also think it's nice because you get that California redwood forest. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's a totally different color palette than you've been working mm-hmm. with for the other two films. Well, that's a good lead-in to my first wine pairing because because Endor or most of Endor, I believe, was filmed in the Redwoods of Northern California. So obviously, you've got to talk about some of the wines of Northern California. This is north of Napa, even, and uh, even north of Mendocino, which is considered kind of the furthest north major wine region in California, I believe. Um, But yeah, so some cool wines come out of this region, um, and mostly, apparently, mostly Syrah comes out of northern northern california kind of the redwoods area humboldt county area and i thought that that felt like a good a good wine at least to start out with with return of the jedi because i agree i totally agree anthony that this movie is it's totally over the top and just like really fast paced lots is happening there's big characters the whole time not that there aren't in the other movies but there's like a little bit more subtlety in the other movies i would say well this is very heavy-handed and very silly it's it's almost Mm -hmm. it's it's one of the sillier movies it definitely of the original trilogy which is funny because like it's the denouement and like the final battle the the change in tone between the guerrilla battle between an army of furry little people and Mm -hmm. imperial stormtroopers Mm -hmm. and then the cutaway to like the epic lightsaber battle between darth vader and luke is just the the change in tone is amazing and that they managed to stitch it together effectively is the most amazing thing i've ever seen Mm -hmm. because for some reason you believe it you know Mm mm-hmm and I think a lot of that has to do with the editing and the acting and just the, like, I can't imagine a better run film than Return of the Jedi, not because it's the best film, but because it manages to keep it together mm-hmm. through all these wild yeah. tonal differences, yeah. you know? I think that's... You feel like it's about to fall apart at all times and right. it somehow keeps it together. It yeah. somehow keeps it together. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to put it. It's like there's so many pieces going on that it feels like it could it could have failed, but it didn't. At least that's my personal mm-hmm. opinion. I know some people are not huge fans of Return of the Jedi. I disagree. I think... Well, let's talk about the first act. Because yeah. that's because that's almost, what I remember. That's freshly. almost its own movie. <laughs> the first act. It really is. It yeah. it is like a heist movie, right? In the middle, of, like in the middle of the Star Wars saga, they just go off and do a, a thirty minute heist. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I don't know how you feel, Anthony, about Solo, but um, I felt like Solo is kind of a bigger exploration of that. That heist. That vibe. heist vibe. Yeah. And yeah, I, I liked Solo. Personally. Me too. too. Solo was great. It's a buddy film. Yeah, it, yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. I think they, Absolutely. you know, they clearly had an idea in mind of what they wanted it to be, and I think it was that. Uh, that might be a hot take for some people on the internet, but that's what I think. We you know? um we've done a solo episode. If you haven't listened yet, listeners, go listen. It's with uh, our good friend Brandon Grugel, who is delightful and is also a big fan of Solo. And we'll so, wait. And so yes, pause now. And, and you're, you're back. back. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. But yeah, I 
I just think, because I, I remember, I think, when I was a kid, too, I don't know if I would have said that this was my favorite. Um, I forget at which point, because I also, at this point, say Empire Strikes Back is my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. Even but, if it's not your favorite, at some point in your adult life, if you like Star Wars at all, you have to pretend it's your favorite. Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's considered, it, it, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, it is objectively the best written film. Right. And it also has some of the most creative, like, action sequences, I think. Well, but, and we were mm-hmm. we were talking about this last night while watching the first act. Like, some of Luke's lines in the beginning, particularly the beginning of the film, where, like, suddenly he's a Jedi Knight. And mm-hmm. whereas before the last time we saw him, he, he was incredibly vulnerable and he was still learning. And like some of that is not written perfectly. Um, and no. And but but that's but that's fine. Um, and and uh, just bless Mark Hamill. We love him. Oh, yes. Uh, to to your point, though, about how silly yes. this movie is. I think yes. that. Uh, did you watch it on Disney Plus? Yes. Because if you if you watch it on if you watch it on Disney Plus, you're seeing the most recent edit that George Lucas did. Right. And every edit that he did, and he did two major edits on this film, makes the movie even campier and right. even sillier. Right. And I don't I don't think in a way that is beneficial. Mm-hmm. Like in in the in Jabba's palace, he edited in, and I think the 1997 1998 versions. He added in what people call the Jedi rock. Yeah, uh-huh. the the, which, the band. Yeah, yeah, like the band is there in the original, just like in passing, right, but he creates but the... this like CGI. Yeah. Yeah. Like two minute musical. Hooka tang, wigga bang, wigga bigga bigga. Oh, yes, that. Yeah. All in a uh, language that does not exist right. with no subtitles. Right. Uh, you would you would think he would have learned from the Star Wars holiday special not to do that, but he did not learn. Right. So there it is in the middle of the movie. Well, and this was something that we were talking about last night because Winston, you said you liked that. Of and... all the CGI um, sort of carve ups in the re-released movies, because I saw mm-hmm. them all in theaters, as I'm sure you did. Yeah, me too. Um, that was when I first of, saw these movies. Of all the, the added scenes, that was the one where I thought. Well, this is utterly silly, but I actually think it kind of this contributes more to the story than even the Jabba scene in the revisited New Hope, um, which I thought didn't add anything to that character or said anything like most of it I thought was just wasteful. And then I saw that and I was like, well, first of all, it's catchy tune. (laughs) And second, it's like, yeah, so this is, you know, how musicians exist in this world. Like, that's kind of interesting is you play for gangsters and warlords. And I think I'm more on your side, Anthony, though, because although I like I don't mind like the substance of the band, it the CGI really takes me out of it, especially in in uh, conjunction to the puppets that are there. Yeah. And like I'm like, okay, you could have done this. Right. You're you're George Lucas. You can do whatever the fuck you want. But obviously this was around the time of the prequels and everything and he was really into CGI. Right. And um well, I think it would have been great to do with puppets. They specifically anyway. replaced the lead singer puppet yeah. in the original movie who in the one she's like the lady lead singer mm-hmm. um, who has the big lips mm-hmm. like eh, 
Um, but she is this multi operator puppet mm. in the original Return of the Jedi. And it's been so long since I've seen the original. There's version. two to four operators They're working hard to her, find. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think I had it on VHS, but I, but yep. I. But I don't think because because I have I have the original trilogy on DVD, but already I think in that yeah it's um it's the re-release it's the yeah. re-release because like Hayden Christensen is there at the end and yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that that will I mean we'll get to that yeah but that well, and one other edit that George Lucas does I think really really take away from the last act of the movie and they're not even big edits but they're just so frustrating and like him trying to retcon the prequels into the original trilogy. Is the other edit that you're talking about where he adds Naboo into the victory sequence? Or is it something No, I'm not talking about Wisa is free, although that's pretty bad too. I'm talking about (laughs) in the throne room when Vader throws the Emperor down the, uh, the shaft screaming no in the exact same tone that he does in episode three, as if to say, no, it wasn't a completely idiotic decision that I put that in episode three. And to show you, I'm going to put it in. Oh, God, I forgot that. I didn't even make that connection, but that's 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 a very that's very smart. That's a very good connection. Well, just a couple things that I wanted to mention, because we just uh, recently recorded the episode with Sarah Shackett talking about A New Hope. And in that one, we talked a lot about possible alternate casting choices for the main cast. Um, Mm. For this movie, what I thought was interesting were possible other directors for it. Um, Mm -hmm. because, and I don't know if you know this, either of you, but I certainly didn't know it, but two directors that were in the running were Steven Spielberg and David Lynch. So, um, I did not know about David Lynch. I knew about Steven Spielberg. I did not know about David Lynch. Thank God it was not David Lynch. Yeah. Um, apparently, apparently when they came to David Lynch, he was like, there's nothing I'd rather do less. Um, <laughs> he was like, I want to steal a screenplay from a talented writer and make one of the famously worst movies ever in Dune. Are you, oh, you're talking about Dune. Um, David Lynch is a monster. I fucking Winston, hate him. Winston Mulholland Drive Lynch. is an overrated piece of garbage. <laughs> Wild at Heart is fine. You've never seen Twin Peaks, though, and I think you'd... Twin Peaks is great. Twin Peaks is, Twin great. Peaks is great. He's oh, also a, a genuinely terrible actor in the entertainment industry. I mean, agent actor yes right he is a a rotten soul who does horrible things to people and i hate him for sure yes that that is fair i don't dislike that's my hot take you can at me yeah i don't dislike his work as much as you do wild at heart is really good yeah not gonna i i love twin peaks and that's a big a big part of my i i didn't watch it till i was a teenager so it's not like a part of my childhood or anything but um but i really really liked it um, but yeah, but Steven Spielberg, apparently, this was after Raiders of the Lost Ark had come out. And mm-hmm. so there was some conflict there. Um, I think that if I'm remembering correctly, and I might be misremembering, I think it was that the Directors Guild didn't want him mm. to do it or something to that effect. I think you're I right. I remember there was like a snafu with the Directors Guild that was involved in some way. Um I don't remember why, though. I don't uh, remember yeah. why either. What's the official release date? Is it 82? 83. 83. Mm-hmm. So so Lynch was also actively filming Dune at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that makes sense. 
Um, but yeah, but I, I will, we'll look up what the whole drama was. I'm, I'm, I have a feeling it's sort of an underwhelming drama about why Steven Spielberg didn't did it, didn't do it. But so the, um, the director turned out to be Richard Marquand. Is that how you pronounce his name? Mar- I think so. Marquand. Yeah. Um, n- haven't really heard about anything else he's ever done. I, I looked him up after watching the movie and I was like, huh. I guess it's sort of like the the prequel, the, not the prequels, the original trilogy curse joke is that like every one of those directors had one good movie and it was the movies they directed right. in the original trilogy. Right, yeah. I, I have to say there are amazing directorial moments in the movie. I mean, the throne room fight scene by itself is just, it's poetry, it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and I personally... I know we're jumping around a little bit, but um, but I personally am a huge fan of the Ewoks. I love the Ewoks. Um, I know some people are not. Some people are very anti-Ewok. Uh, the Ewoks were how I got Ari to sit through this movie. That makes total like, sense. Hey, Ari famously anti-Star Wars. Uh, yes. My wife, Ari Levine, <laughs> guest of the podcast. Yes. Famously anti-Star Wars. Uh, and I said, hey, this is the one with the Ewoks. And she sat down and we watched it and she enjoyed the Ewoks, but did point out that uh, they are a little bit racially problematic. For sure. Uh, for sure. In their their uh, worship of technology. Yeah. And she pointed it out to me. And initially I had that like knee jerk reaction that people do when you challenge something they love from childhood. And I was like, no, they're fine. They're not racist. And then a literal witch doctor walked on screen and I was like, never mind. You're right. Never mind. You called it. Oh, yeah. The Ewok with the bone in his nose. Yep. No. Yeah. It's a hundred, hundred percent. And then they're like, we're going to eat you. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. And they're cannibals. Okay. Yeah. No, I can see the problems here. Yeah. Yeah. Hugely, hugely problematic. It's got sort of a Melville problem. Yeah, but but you know I choose I <laughs> in my in my brain and this is not good, but I I like sort of try to forget that part of it. Again, not good because we should recognize uh you know racism and stereotypes on film. Hey, past Emma, recognizing racism but ignoring it is a prime example of white privilege and is a pattern you should probably change. Just saying. Um, but I did want to talk about Wicket, who is. Oh, yes. Played by the great Warwick Davis. Warwick Davis. This was his first role. I think it was. And 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 then when was Willow? Was it? I think it was 89. 89. But okay. it was the other end of the decade. I believe okay. before Willow, both of the Ewok adventures or Ewok Chronicles or whatever, mm-hmm. both of those films came out. And the first Ooh. one is like a merry romp adventure and the second one is like an evil witch kills everybody oh from the first movie and it's just wicked yeah. and the dude left or wicked and his and the younger sister oh, in the first movie mm-hmm. and yeah and the, the change in tone is incredible and the Ewok Adventure 2 is like a legit pretty good dark sci-fi huh. movie and Ewok Adventure 1 is like we want to make more Star Wars money right and then i think willow happened right okay cool well, um, just talking about the Ewoks in terms of wine, because I figure the the Ewoks like to drink some wine. Naturally. Let's let's remove the the racist aspect of it for a second. Let's imagine they're just a, a community of, you know, fighting teddy bears. People and... don't people don't come up with jams <laughs> like yup up, egg up, yup up. 
without drinking a little wine. You know? It's yep. true. That's there. That's there. That's, That's their the song. original one that was replaced in the uh, the new edit. Oh, but, was yeah. it? That's the original Ewok victory song. Okay. So I was thinking, you know, obviously they like to drink and like whatever's in like large quantities. And so I was thinking, like my first thought was like, they're kind of like Vikings in a way. Like they kind of, they'd want to drink like a lot of mead or um, I was thinking of Vino Verde, which I know is one of Winston's favorites, which is just like a really quaffable white wine from Portugal. Um, Montepulciano from Italy. That just like... You know, I was thinking about when I went to Italy with my best friend. Um, we did our little Euro trip eight years ago now at this point, probably. And we went to stay at all of these um, hostels. And one of the hostels we stayed at in Florence, um, you know, like the guy who owned it, his grandfather owned a vineyard. And so he would just bring out like pitchers and pitchers of like table red wine that was probably mm-hmm. made from either Sangiovese or Montepulciano or some combination of the two. And I was like, yeah, that's that's what Ewoks drink. Whatever you can, whatever you got pitchers of. Um. <laughs> it is it is famously the the served wine of Italian uh, baptisms and oh, uh, weddings I didn't know that. and everything. Yeah, I mean, I I worked at a mob restaurant in upstate New York <laughs> for a little while, and Montepulciano, like to like not only would we go through fifty bottles in a couple hours for a lunch, but then we would be like sealing them in those vacuum sealed yeah. bags so people could take it home. And well, it's relatively the most Montepulciano is relatively inexpensive right. and usually quite good. Hey, Pastema, if Montepulciano is a mob wine, it might be a better pairing for Jabba the Hutt, eh? Yeah, no, I, I love Montepulciano. I just remember that experience. Like, it is very, it's a very um, functional and pedestrian wine. Not right. in the bad way, but in the right. way that, like, it gets you there, it gets done. Absolutely. It's a crowd pleaser. Absolutely. Which I think is what the mm-hmm. Ewoks would go for. Yeah. It's good for, for toasting yeah. and singing and all that stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. Worshipping C-3PO as a god, you know. Yeah. Like you, you know, do. I was trying to come up with a good wine for 3PO while, while we were watching last night. I was just like, the the comedy, the physical comedy that Anthony Daniels does, physical and vocal, uh, all the comedy that Anthony Daniels mm-hmm. does in... I mean, in all the movies, but in the beginning of this movie, I was just like last night, I was, I mean, the last time I saw this movie was just a few months ago because I did a few, I I did a full rewatch of all the movies leading up to Rise of Skywalker. Um, But, but last night I was like particularly tickled by, (laughs) by, by Anthony Daniels. He's just, he's very, he's, he's, he does excellent physical comedy. And I would, I would guess that C-3PO's taste in wine is probably very fruit forward and very expensive. I think you're That's right. I think, ooh, I think he'd like a Condrieu from the, from the Rhone Valley. Um, Condrieu mm. is like the fancy white wine coming from the Rhone Valley um, in, in, in Southern France. And it's usually Viognier based, um, which Viognier can be either, like, it can be made very crisp occasionally, but 
but made as chondru, it's like very viscous and very aromatic and still dry, but like usually it's heavily oaked and like really, and it's, and it's very expensive too. See, I was going to suggest Beaujolais <laughs> Nouveau because he's the kind of like fake snob who would like Beaujolais Nouveau <laughs> just because they know what it is and get to explain it to people like at dinner parties. Yeah, maybe. But it's often not very good. But I feel like 3PO actually has real wine knowledge even if he's never tasted fair, it. Fair, Actually, because... That's true. He spent how long serving a very wealthy family on Alderaan? That's right, yes. Like, he's, he's got expensive wine knowledge. Yeah. Oh my he God. may have been built in a garage on Tatooine, but... He was raised on Alderaan. Well, and talking to their moisture evaporators at the same time. 3PO is totally a sommelier, and <laughs> we didn't see that part of his life, but he he was he would like serve serve the wine in the proper way around the table oh, yeah. and and all that. Totally, totally. That's what they mean by protocol droid. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, one other thing I wanted to mention um is that so we kind of we kind of talked about this a little bit um, in some other episodes, but so Harrison Ford apparently, speaking of Raiders of the Lost Ark, had just done that and started the Indiana Jones fran- franchise, but he apparently did not want to return for this movie for some hmm. reason. Or I that he, that's a rumor. He on, very I mean, much. Uh, what I've heard is that he very much wanted to have Han Solo die at the end of Empire Strikes Back because he thought his character arc was complete. The mm-hmm. fact that he's, mm-hmm. that, you know, that I love you, I know scene, he thought that was like, that was the end of his character arc and mm-hmm. he had nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And so he thought that it should be the end of his character. And then when he came back for Force Awakens, supposedly one of his conditions was that he must die in the film. Yeah. Because he did not I, I had heard yet. that as well, yeah. That, yeah, that tracks yeah. too. And honestly, I think it does make The Force Awakens a better film. And I do think totally. that they kind of cheapen that decision a little bit in Rise of Skywalker, but I know that's getting off topic. Uh... <laughs> See, I, I actually kind of disagree with that. I liked that he came back for a moment in Rise of Skywalker. And I know that it probably happened because Carrie Fisher died and she was probably supposed to have that scene. Mm. But in the moment, I liked that decision, but I can understand absolutely not liking it. And I do think that it was it was powerful to have him die in The Force Awakens. But apparently it- also, he said, initially he said he would come back for Return of the Jedi, but he wanted... He wanted Han Solo to die in Return of the Jedi. Like, initially, that was his... He just wanted him to die. He really wants to kill Han Solo. He really, really wanted to kill Han Solo. It's funny, because in and, real life, he kind of is Han Solo. Yeah. Where he's like, <laughs> I've crashed a few planes. Yeah. yeah. And he just always walks away unscathed yeah. from these horrible... Desi- like, you read in the newspaper, he's like, huh? Oh, fucking... Harrison Ford has crashed his plane in some field in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He called from the gas station later to say everything's okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Yep. Get off my plane. Yep. Poor Calista Flockhart, every time he gets in a plane, must be like, really? Again? We've been yeah. doing this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also, apparently, along the lines of, you know, wanting Han Solo to die, apparently... One of the possible endings of this movie was basically that everybody but Luke was going to die 
um, of mm. the, or maybe not everybody, but like huh. the majority. I that's what I read on the Wikipedia. So, mm-hmm. so we all know that that is a highly trusted, veritable source. But so that apparently was one of the what one of the possible endings was kind of going to be Luke like walking off into the sunset alone, um, which would have been very different for yeah. the franchise. Um, but they. George Lucas and and everybody else involved decided they wanted it to end on a more optimistic note. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been interesting, and that would have probably changed the course of Star Wars history. Right. In... Well, and that's that's like a very Rogue One kind of ending. Yeah. I mean... I, and... I mean, to be frank, it's also kind of the ending of The Last Jedi. Yeah. You know, like that's that true. is kind of how it ends. You know, except instead of Luke walking off, it's it's Ray. I mean, Luke obviously right. is one of the last points of the movie is he dies. Spoiler alert for the Last Jedi. Uh, but there's spoilers. There's spoilers of a plenty. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that they went that tack with a different movie eventually in the saga. I I right. do think that the. I think it would have felt weird had they, and maybe this is just because I've seen the movie so many times. I think if they had gone a different way with the ending, I think it would have been a, I don't think it would have been right for the movie, even though it might've been more like emotionally hard hitting quote unquote. I think it wouldn't have felt totally earned for this movie where like, you know, you think at the end of empire strikes back Han Solo is dead, like for all intents and purposes. I mean, they say he's alive. He's just hibernating. But, you know, he come like in the first 10 minutes of the movie, someone is resurrected after what turns out to be years frozen in a block of stone. And then right. at the end, you're just going to kill everyone like that doesn't make any sense. Like this is not that yeah. kind of movie. You can yeah. see them poised to do it, though, because right like all the 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 trough of the film actually happens in the third act, which I think is yeah. uh, an interesting and unique thing about this movie because usually you would think it would like end the second act. But no, we're like in the third act of the movie when we have that part where the emperor goes, oh, I'm afraid your friends will not survive. You know, and, like, <laughs> and it's very dark and then he starts fighting. Like you can see how everybody would die at that moment. We'd watch the fleet get blown up. We'd watch, mm-hmm. you know, all the Ewoks get massacred. And then then we have that operatic finale. And I can see plugging that into a much darker end of the film. Sure. Rather than the more positive one that it has. Although yeah. I'm not quite, like, I, I'm not really convinced by the idea that they wouldn't want to sell lots of toys by having the characters every kid loves die at the end well i wonder i wonder Mm -hmm. how much of the creative decisions were influenced both in empire strikes back to a certain extent and this movie by just how successful it became and Mm -hmm. how popular how popular it was because the the like plan for the the story, I think, changed many, many times over the course of pre-New Hope to into into production on the first movie and then the second movie and then the third movie. So it's it's an interesting thing to me, just like thinking about something that like a trilogy like this, which I know it's not unique, but at the time it kind of 
was in a way mm-hmm. where the story was kind of living and being built by the fan base in a way to a certain extent and that's something mm-hmm. we see a lot now like with serial television and movie franchises and everything like that like i feel like we see that more now but at a certain point like george lucas did not have entire ownership over this story that's very true and i actually think that was to the original trilogy's benefit because i think there's that really famous scene in the documentary of the making of the phantom menace where they do the uh, initial screening of the movie for george lucas and like 20 other people and afterwards you can see them all realize that none of them have told george lucas no throughout this entire process and they've made a monster (laughs) In, in two or three decades yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> and, and like even George Lucas knows he messed up and he said something to the effect of like, you know, I think we could have probably cut a lot of like X and Y storyline, but like it's already been like it's already done. The CGI's finished. We're just doing right. this is the rough cut of the movie. We can't go back and change it. And then like six months later they released the Phantom Menace and it was a famous disaster. Um but I think well, that... I mean, it was a famous disaster in some ways. It was critically panned, and it obviously ruined that poor Jake Lloyd kid's life. Yeah. But uh, and the guy who played Jar Jar Binks. Yes. But, I, yeah. But there's there's like, it's much better than Attack of the Clones, and if you th- if you think about it for a second, like it actually holds up a lot better. In, yeah, this is something in this retrospect. Is, this is the another Duel thing. of the Fates is an amazing Duel piece of, of music, an amazing, amazing scene. Darth Maul as a character is actually done very well. The pod racing sequence is really cool if you can just not think about the protagonist. There's a it's, lot. And, and, and also, like, Liam Neeson and, and Ewing are fucking incredible. Right, in that movie. right. I, but, yeah, I, I mean, I think that... So, I think, first of all, I think, uh, Winston, you and I just have very different opinions about the prequels. You know, I, I know you you see more redeeming qualities in the prequels than I, I do. I want you to have it out. Um, <laughs> I do agree with you that Attack of the Clones is the low point of the prequel trilogy. Um, I I do think that, you know, Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor did a great job as Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi being given not that much to do. Um but I also recognize that all of this is sort of a sidebar to uh, what we're what we're actually talking about, which is the end of the original trilogy, right. where I think they had a, like a much more cohesive idea of what they wanted to do and mm-hmm. had people like it felt like George Lucas was still at the point of his career where he still had to trust Lawrence Kasdan a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that a lot of the good parts of the original trilogy and the things that we love so much, I wouldn't be surprised to learn later on were actually mostly Kasdan. Yeah, it's him uh, surrendering control. He yeah. absolutely is his own worst. Well, enemy. you're well. What you said earlier, Anthony, is a hundred percent right. That that like the problem with the prequels is that nobody told George Lucas no. Yeah. And... <laughs> the culture of no is very important. Yes. And and I do think... Yeah. And what's interesting is that in this original trilogy, I mean, after A New Hope, you know, Lucas was pretty intent on having other directors and, mm-hmm. and like, yielding some of his creative control. However, I mean, again, the Wikipedia said that even though Richard Mark Marquand, 
Marquand. Marquand, yeah. Um, was the offic- official director of this film. Lucas was there like all the time. So I guess Marquand was was very good with actors, and he was a he was a good actors director. It is well acted, the movie. Yeah, and there's a lot that this movie yeah. gets into that, um, like on a on a actor basis, on a personal basis that you don't quite get even in Empire Strikes Back, um, which which I think does a, a little bit more like character development than. The first movie, but but I think I think this movie does take the character development further, and so that's that's a, a great thing about the movie, for sure. And it doesn't take itself too seriously at all. No, no, not at all. I mean, Han Solo is basically making fun of the movie the entire time, right? But you but, still and, believe but he's delightful, his and like, arc. and I and and honestly, like, sure, maybe Harrison Ford thought his character was complete and he wanted him to die. I think that Han Solo is essential to this movie. Oh, he totally commits. Oh, yeah. And it's all, yeah. like, I mean, all I was thinking of really when I said that was that line where he's like, oh, I'm gone for a minute and everybody gets delusions of grandeur, you know? It's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. It's fabulous. That was one of my favorite lines in the movie. And then he's a, a general and he leads the strike team, but he does it in, you Yeah. Know, well, my favorite, my favorite Han fashion. Solo line in this movie definitely, but possibly ever is, is when he's like trying to shoot the... Um, Oh my god, the 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 pit monster, what's it called? Oh, the sarlacc. Oh yeah, the sarlacc. I can see a lot better now. Yeah, no, it's yeah. fine. I can see a lot better now. <laughs> and like to me, that's like that's is it, that's like the glue that keeps the movie together is the humor that carries it forward. Yeah. And it's also one of the big Achilles heel of the prequels is that yeah. they take themselves so seriously that the only humor mm-hmm. they have room for is Jar Jar Binks, and that, of course, was really yeah. racist. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, it was so bad. Yeah. It was so bad. To me, like, because as part of our rewatch, we rewatched the prequels a few months ago, and I mm-hmm. hadn't seen them in years. And I did have to say, like, there's a lot that, to me personally, I was like, oh, this is not quite as bad as I remember. Um, Attack of the Clones is really bad. But, Duel of the Fates um, is but, untouchable as a sequence. But I'm the sorry. the main it thing does more storytelling. The main anyway. thing that's unforgivable is is Jar Jar Binks and and uh, mm-hmm. everything about that. Yeah. Speaking of you know racist tropes. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but we were talking about good actor moments in the movie, and I feel like this was the first time that um, James Earl Jones got to do anything really vulnerable, which I really liked. Like there's that scene um, where he and Luke essentially do like an Aaron Sorkin style walk and talk. Right. Yeah. 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 Where, yeah. And I had, I had like vague memories of that scene, but I had forgotten just how like Frank they are with each other in that scene, you know? And, I really enjoy the moment where he basically says, like, you know, you should do what you need to do because it is too late for me. Yeah. Like, you you feel however you want to feel about this, but there's no helping me. But it's not because I don't want your help. It's just right. I feel I'm irredeemable. Right. Which I I really liked that moment. And it's just such, like, a good scene because... He spends the entire trilogy just being like this, basically being the person who everyone in Rogue One thinks he is, you know, like just an unstoppable killing machine of evil. And then in this one scene, you get to see like a little bit and in fits and starts beyond that, you start to see the person 
who he was mm-hmm. and the person who is still inside. Uh, which, and I, I thought that was really just like a great way of setting that up because I think if they hadn't had that scene, his turn at the end would have been a lot less meaningful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah, I think I totally agree. But now that I'm thinking about it, even in the first scene he's in, where he's talking about how they have to redouble their efforts to complete the Death Star on time, you hear him go like, I hope so, Commander, for your sake. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not the Vader from Empire Strikes Back, who's just yeah. like choking people left and right. Yes, and but but his next line is, the Emperor is not as forgiving as, as I am. am. And <laughs> I remember when I saw the re-release. Just a theaters, joke, right? It's played as a joke. Yeah. Well, like one of my friends out loud went, yeah, okay, like you're forgiving. Like in yeah. the middle of a crowded right, theater. Right, right. You know, we were nine. Not unlike the movie, <laughs> subtext becomes text. Right. Yes, exactly. Which I I was going to say about that scene too, where where Vader's Vader and Luke are having this frank talk, mm-hmm. and there's no subtext in that scene. Each character just says what they feel directly. Yes, and exactly. It still manages to be like heart wrenching and filled with tension. Absolutely. Even though the characters aren't mm-hmm. playing against type or whatever it is that they teach you in writing and acting and everything else, they're just like. I think you should turn to the good side. I can't turn to the good side. I don't think I can. Well, I really think you can. Oh, well, I'm going to take you to the emperor. It's going to be bad. And then, uh, you know, and it's too late. And it's just like, okay, well, that's exactly. You just laid out what's going to happen. But it works dramatically. Well, I think that, you know, we were talking about earlier that some of the weakest writing of the original trilogy is in this movie. But I do think that the scene, like, the you're right, Anthony, the writing for Vader gets much much better in this movie yeah i think so and i think that's because he doesn't have to just like come out and like do the evil exposition like he's had to do in the last couple of movies he's got the emperor to do the evil exposition now and so he can actually be more of a character oh and and that reminds me this is something that i wanted to mention this is something that we talked about a little bit when we did the prequels episode but our our little empress is here our our queen she's you know, em- emperor, empress of the galaxy. But so in, it's crazy to me that Ian McDiarmid, who plays the emperor, was cast as the emperor in 1983 or around thereabouts when... Probably when he, based on his voice. Maybe, maybe based on his voice. But he was not that old at that point. They, no, he was like 40. Yeah, they aged him up. And then, mm-hmm. and then he's obviously in all the prequels um, as kind of his own age. I think maybe they maybe they made him a little bit younger. And then no, they aged him down by about they, forty years. They spent hours and hours and hours on Ian McDermott's makeup in all three films, especially in Phantom Menace, to make him look decades younger than he actually was. Well, it couldn't have been that much because those movies came out twenty years ago, and he's still. He was kicking. He was so. close to anyway. They they aged 50 him something in the original, and then he was. 80. I think he was forty in the original. Right, but he was eighty by the time they started doing the thing. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, seventies no. or eighties. Well, look it up. I think he's. I think he's like close to eighty now. I think he's close to okay. eighty that's, now, that's and so he right. was close to sixty when these movies yeah. were being made, or in, in his sixties when these when the prequels mm-hmm. were being made. Um, so they so they aged him down a little bit, but not like terrifically but now but 
see, my gripe with Rise of Skywalker, my main gripe with Rise of Skywalker, I mean, it's fine to bring the Emperor back. That's, that's fine and well and good if, if it had been set up maybe better. Um, yes. But the fact that, but the fact that, uh, raise his granddaughter again spoilers if anybody's listening to this there will be a a blanket spoiler warning at the beginning of this episode but Mm -hmm. the fact that ray became his granddaughter i was like this is the stupidest shit i've ever heard i loved i loved that she the the like the idea that she was quote-unquote nobody in Mm -hmm. that was set up in the last jedi well the last jedi worked so hard to get rid of the idea of the hero king right and then in like two lines rise of skywalker brings it back yeah i will say in 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 a cursory defense of it because it's my nature um (laughs) it is a nod to the expanded universe where there's a long storyline involving the clone emperor palpatine Right, sure. but there's a long storyline for it, as opposed right. to just like BT Dubs. He's back. It's at your right. right. go. Yeah. Right. It it just ugh. That part of Rise of Skywalker really got under my skin. But anyway, I think that's fair. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Return <laughs> of the Jedi. <laughs> what what i what struck me when i was watching return of the jedi is we we talked about how like fast paced this movie is and i think for large swaths of it for a movie that came out in the early 80s i think you can definitely say it is fast paced i think by our modern sensibilities it's still a little pokey in spots totally but the spot that really slowed down for me was actually the throne room scene before the fight mm. when um they are switching between the uh, starship battle outside, which is and amazing, and the throne room scene inside, and the juxtaposition I think is really cool. But the problem is, I don't think they quite had enough for Ian McDermott to do, yeah, because they kept having him make the same speech, right? Like mm-hmm. he was just like, "You see, your friends are dying," and then they right. would cut to his friends dying, and then it would cut back to him and be like. They're still dying. (laughs) And then they would do it again. And they did it like four times before finally Luke gets the lightsaber and the throne room fight happens. Like they could have done with two less. Totally. The so so for all the 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 motivation and the yummy character stuff that Vader gets in this movie, the Emperor gets none of that and is just the like very stereotypical arch villain and in the way that Vader never quite was like even in the previous movies when he's very like evil villainous there's something so compelling about Vader um and that mm-hmm. and that I give a lot of I mean if not all the credit a lot of the credit to James Earl right. Jones but yes um but but you know suddenly here we are in the last movie finally getting the emperor and well, like the, the emperor seems like an evil god, you know. Like right. he's such a blanket, like dark force, and supposed to seem totally invincible and like he knows everything. Whereas even in, you know, New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, you have Vader saying lines like, "I want them alive," you know. Yeah, like, right. He's, he's got passion. He still he's seems got, like a he's person. Got humanity um, in him, and, and the emperor just has none of that, you know. He's he's kind of he's a little underwhelming when you first meet him because like he's being built up as the emperor of the entire galaxy and everyone serving him as an evil space samurai. Right. And then he shows up and he's an old dude in a robe. Right. 
And what, like that first moment, I remember when I saw him and I was like, ooh, the Emperor scene, the Emperor scene. I was so excited. And then he comes off the transport right. and my first thought was, that guy? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, just love, I love Ian McDermott. I love this character. But as totally. a reveal, I was like, that's it? Well, he's built up to be like Thanos, right? You expect him to like come down with a shining sword and right. some devil mm-hmm. wings or something. But again, uh, to to put my well actually glasses closer to my nose, um, <laughs> he's modeled on Emperor Augustus, who famously, mm. once he became Emperor of Rome, he always appeared in that hooded um, cowl over his toga because even though it had the purple like imperial lining, he had the cowl up because that indicated like humility before the gods mm. and he's also his domestic program was all about restoring like family values mm. and so he very much did the emperor palpatine thing where once he had seized total control he was like oh i'm just an old man you know mm. and 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 did that so that is actually that does have a basis in historical fact and i know for a fact that lucas knew about it and that it was part of their costume choice that doesn't shock me but, that's true that doesn't but, shock me, but that doesn't mean that it makes a good character. <laughs> it's kind of a nice yeah. fake, and, though, and aside I, from and that. And I will say yeah. there is arrogance in that false humility because that was also Augustus's way of saying that he was high priest. Sure. Right, exactly. Like, yes, yeah. exactly. Because he had, he had been a priest of Zeus or something when he was like growing. That was like one of the things rich kids did was they were like, well, and now you're a priest of Zeus. Well, yeah, obviously, <laughs> like the self-deification yeah. is definitely a big part mm-hmm. of this and is right. something that... Star Wars tackles, you know, throughout, throughout this. Right. It's many, many facets and sagas. But this is kind of taking a different direction, but I just had this thought. Um, I was wondering, because I can't remember, and probably one of the two of you, if not both of you, knows this. When did they know that Luke and Leia were siblings? When was it decided? I don't know. I when was it decided? So did, was it known before the, like New Hope came out or it was um it was I don't think it was known before A New Hope came out because he built a lot of the lore between A New Hope and Return of the Jedi. I believe it was known by the time Return of the Jedi happened um but not revealed mm-hmm. and then I think made explicit, obviously, in Return of the Jedi. I think he he might have decided on it after Empire Strikes Back because the way okay. it's written in no he no he knows he knows in he knows by the time uh, Empire Strikes Empire Strikes Back happens because Yoda says there is another right right so that's got it. but who knows when that scene was written and filmed like that could have been during the production of Empire anyway it's sometime yeah. during or after Empire Strikes Back okay that was that was a question that I had that I was I wanted clarified and that but that just leads me to one of the one of the kind of lulls in the movie for me um, is the the scene between Luke and Leia in Endor, which is not it's not it's not a bad lull, um, but that is one of the m- moments where the where the movie slows down a little bit, and where they where they talk about um, how how they are related, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's the best written scene in all of. All of Star Wars, but I do think that Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher play it to the best of their abilities. Yeah. Bless them. 
I would say generally <laughs> from the speeder bike scene on Endor to the beginning of the fleet attack on the Death Star, that's like the lull of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Yes, like the the whole, like as adorable as the Ewoks are, their presence is a drag on the movie for about half the time they're on screen because there is this whole- that is true like sidebar where they're gonna get eaten and then there's dancing and then C-3PO literally retells the entire saga. That's uh, true. That's very true. For them in a way that is very cute, but it, and it sort of establishes his relationship with the Ewoks, but it's all done in service of like establishing the relationship with this race of aliens that, okay, sure, they're useful, but did we need to spend 30 minutes doing it? I don't I don't know that we did. Right. Well, my right. favorite apocryphal story about Return of the Jedi that I've never bothered to verify is that Lucas originally wanted the planet to be Kashyyyk, the Wookiee planet. And he wanted, huh. instead of the Ewoks, he wanted the whole race of Wookiees. And Ooh. basically production was like, look, we can make a bunch of bear suits for little people, but we can't do it for... A bunch of giants like Peter Mayhew. A Mayhew's. bunch of Mick Peter Mayhews. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, so you, yeah. you pick what you want, but we're not going to be able to. Uh, he's, Chewie's going to be the only hairy Wookiee if, if we have to do it on Kashyyyk. Right, right. I, I, have, I have also heard that rumor as well. Similarly, I, I have also heard that one of the reasons, the only reason that Warwick Davis is in the movie is because he was such a huge fan of Star Wars. And he was oh. a kid when he filmed this movie. He was like... I think he's 13. He's got to be because he he's this was a long time ago and he's not that old. He's like maybe Yeah, he was 50s. young. He was a literal child. Um and I don't even think he's 30 by the time they film Willow. No, he I might think still he's... be in his 20s when they Oh, he's like 22 when they do Willow because yeah. Willow was like 89 yeah. and right. this was 83. Right. So, like if he's 15 filming this movie, he's old. Right. Um, and the reason they did it was because he like, you know, was a kid living in England and he would like come to the set uh, all the time and like wrote a bunch of letters and was like clearly a super fan. Oh, so and <laughs> they wanted to come up with a way to have him in the movie. And so they made up Wicket and oh. he does such a good job. And he's just like a kid off the street. I didn't realize. I just didn't... killing it. I didn't think about how young he must have been in this movie. But I like that story better. There's some really adorable production stills of him with Carrie Fisher where oh. he's like a 13-year-old kid and he's like two and a half feet tall and he's he's oh. in his Ewok getup but his head is off and they're just like sitting next to each other on set. It's so cute oh. and they have just huge smiles. It's, it's very sweet. Oh. It just warms my heart. <laughs> I think one of the most emotionally impactful moments of of the tr the original trilogy to say nothing of return of the jedi is when one of the ewoks dies in an yeah, explosion it's and true. the other ewok is trying to like bring him back to life and there's no it's i mean it's like 10 seconds long and yes. there's there's nothing that we understand as language but the sounds that they're making it's like heartbreaking it's true it's really and true. you're like oh oh it is actually a war this is not just like a fun swedish family robinson right. you know home alone <laughs> right. movie right actually there are high stakes that's an excellent point and it is also the longest static shot in the entire to that point the entire saga i don't know if that is true uh, as of seven, eight, and nine, but as of uh, one through six, it was the longest. Mm. Wow, it was the longest shot with no care camera movement. Yep. Well, I, I mean, wow. that no kind of makes sense to me because that's like 
we've talked about a bunch um, on the podcast and in our life about how, like, the sacrifice in these movies is huge. And in A New Hope, you were saying you you counted how many fighter pilots go out and, like, two or three yeah. come back. I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's three out of 30 in A New Hope that come back from the assault on the Death Star. So it's a 90% casualty rate. Essentially, the rebels are kamikazes or terrorists, mm-hmm. whatever you want to compare, analogize them to. But and the, and I think that's shown in the space battle again as well. But mm-hmm. that's the the moment when you get to see the Ewoks, who hitherto have been bringing a galactic army to its knees right. with some logs <laughs> and rocks. Right. And right. And you get to see that well, actually this is decimating them as well. Right. Like, this and is it's war. well, it's a moment of seeing the personal loss, and I think that's something that the future movies took much farther. Obviously, Rogue One was kind of the epitome of that. Um, Oh, and the opening sequence in Last Jedi with the bombers? Oh, my God. Like, any samurai film would be proud to have that sequence. It was just incredible. Absolutely. But the the sacrifice and the loss was there. It's just made more explicit in later films. And I think Sarah Shackett brought up how innovative it was. I mean, some World War II movies, especially the Dam Busters, did do stuff like this. But the fact that they're cutting into the cockpits, Mm. you know, when Mm -hmm. all these things are happening. So every time one of these fighter pilots dies, it's very intimate to you. Yeah. You've only ever yeah. seen them from like a mid mid close up shot, right? And yeah. So you know, in two or three lines, you relate to them more than most of the you know uh, background characters of the movie, right? Because you're like, oh, Porkins, you know, Biggs, all these people, and they right. have these lines, and then as they die, you you sit there and watch them explode. Yeah. And yeah. And you actually do see a you do see a kamikaze pilot in this one, right? The A wing. Um, that goes the into A-wing the pilot, super star, yeah. star destroyer, who's Asian, weirdly. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was like a fascinating uh, moment where he took down. Did he take down the dreadnought? I think he took down he, the super star. He destroyer, takes down right? the executor. Yeah, the the, the super executor. Star thank des- you. Yes, the super star destroyer. And I don't. It's not necessarily implied that he flies in intentionally. But like once they hit him and he's spiraling down, he goes straight into the command bridge of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's somewhat well, like problematic, we... but it's interesting also because I mean that I mean it's not outside the rebel vibe. They just happen to cast yeah. an Asian dude as the A wing pilot right. in that. So I'm not trying to make a pinboard. Well, conspiracy who knows? Theory who here, knows but... how intentional that choice was or not, and what. What the meaning of it is, if it right. was intentional, but um, but I do think that this kind of ties back into. I feel like this discussion has been very hitting very different points in this movie, and but the, it's kind of going back to how we started with how this movie is kind of all over the place, but somehow mm-hmm. remains cohesive. And I'm wondering if there's anything we can pinpoint about what that is other than just the strength of the characters and the story and the lore. Maybe that's just it. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the... I, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's because the plot of the movie, once they rescue Han Solo, yeah. which is like its own little mini right, movie right, in right, the middle, right. it's very yeah. self-contained. Once they do that, the plot of the movie is really simple. It's just, we're going to blow up the Death Star again. And in order to right. do that, 
we have to turn off this battery and shoot it over here. Right. That's all that needs to happen. And so the rest of the movie is just the shenanigans that are happening, turning off the battery and blowing it up. Right. And so even though all of these different things are happening on screen and there's big space battles and then there's, uh, you know, the throne room scene and the fight on the ground in Endor, it's all in service of something that is very easy to understand. Yeah. And I think that that is why the second half of Rogue One works. It works for the same reason right. because it's like all we need to do is turn off one thing. Right. It basically becomes a war movie. In order to do that, we have to do seven more things, but we just have to turn off one thing. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of action movies make where it's like, okay, we need to get this thing and bring it to this place. And then once we get it to this place, we've got to do this complicated thing. It's like, nope, you just got to blow up a thing. Right. That's all well, you that's, need to do. Yeah. That's the Bond movie. Like, as action movies goes, that's what you describe as, is like a, a spy thriller. You know, mm. I've got to break into this to get the MacGuffin, to take it to the other MacGuffin, to to give it to the guy who then has a third MacGuffin. And, the, you know, and 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 that spy thriller plot, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I would argue that maybe in in Rise of Skywalker, that's one of the problems is they're yeah, like, no, we have to go do many. all this other shit. But there's too many MacGuffins. But war movies are very simple, yeah. like take the hill. And after, as you say, after the first act where they rescue Han Solo, it's just a war movie. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's not a breakout movie. It's not a heist movie. It's not anything else but a war movie. And it's also, I think, starting to try and show you the bigger world because you get such small bites in New Hope and in Empire Strikes Back. And they're also tantalizing. And then this, they're kind of like, okay, but let's like zoom out a little bit and try to give you as big a taste as we can while still having it be chewable. And so Mm -hmm. you get the like, I mean, the majority of the return of the jedi right as you've said the the plot of the majority of that movie is the simple objective blow up the death star we don't even get that until the third act of a new hope when it becomes that war movie until then it's like it's like it's a heist film and it's kind of a western and and this is this is something that i mentioned last night was that was that like Kind of the plot of most Star Wars films up to, well, maybe not most, but several of the Star Wars films is like, there's a Death Star, we destroyed it. There's a bigger Death Star, <laughs> we destroyed it. There's a bigger Death Star. And, and like, it seems simple, but it works because that's kind of how life works is mm-hmm. like, there's a... Yeah. What are the highest stakes we can possibly have? Right. And then, and then you defeat it, and then there somehow higher stakes come up, and um, and I think that's something that's really beautiful about the Star Wars stories, like you were saying, is kind of their simplicity in a way, mm-hmm. but having such richness and complexity within the characters and the world that's created around the stakes. Well, and it's a yeah, it's a good versus evil story that allows for things like cowardice, greed. Um, and tragic death in huge quantities. Yeah. And that, mm-hmm. in, in terms of family-friendly entertainment, I think it's it's pretty singular And that it's like, yeah, most of these people will die. And they don't make a big deal about it in terms of the dialogue, but the action is the best storyteller, I think, in the entire Star Wars series. Yeah. And the action often tells a story that, you know, George Lucas et al., aren't necessarily always willing to write, which is that, like, most people don't make it. 
you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing, you know, I that's the other and maybe not last, but one of the last thoughts that I had was um, was that I think a lot that we see in the later Star Wars movies is set up in this movie. You were, we were talking about kind of the comparison between Rogue One and the, you know, the plots of Rogue One and this movie. And mm-hmm. Rogue One is kind of the dark timeline of, <laughs> but but just placed mm-hmm. in a different, and it's not even the dark timeline. It's just like, hey, here's a reality. In some of these stories, you're going to lose the people that you've grown to love. And, mm-hmm. um, well, and by the end, I think of Revenge of the Sith, it's fully adopted that tone. Like from the moment Natalie Portman says, this is how democracy dies to thunderous applause, which is, you know, the best line in the whole prequel trilogy. Yeah. But then from that moment on, I think it, it has that tone of, you know, like a pretty apocalyptic war film and Rogue One just kind of yeah, keeps that up. But I don't think it, it, I think, I think that the new films have a little bit more optimism while still showing the loss a little mm-hmm. bit more. They do. I think the, the Star Wars story films are the ones that have a bit of a darker sense of humor. Um, the, yeah. You mean the offshoot? Yeah. Yeah, so like Rogue, Rogue One, One and, and Solo, Solo yeah. so far, yeah. Because they can. You know, I think there's there's not so many expectations on them as there are in, you know, what we'll call the saga movies. Um Right. And I think that's what a lot of people balked at with The Last Jedi uh, was the, you know, not just a darker tone, but like a, it's not just dark, it's bleak. Yeah. You know, the fact that they're on that planet at the end of the movie and for the first time in the entire saga, help does not come. Yeah. Like, not even in the Star Wars stories do you ever see a moment where help does not come. Yeah. And they have to deal with the fact that they are alone. Uh, and you know, that I think is something that a lot of people didn't like because they like that the, they like the relentless hope of the rebellion. Right. Right. And it's, it's introspective too. It's like, it's the only film in the entire saga that says, are we the good guys? Because even in the prequel trilogy during the Clone Wars, there's no question of, are we the good guys until the very end of Revenge of the Sith? And then it's maybe like, oh, did we overreach a little bit as the Jedi? And that's the only question that's put to you. It is just like evil wins because of the betrayal, like Shakespearean tragedy that happens. But in and in Rogue One, there's ambiguity. But in Last Jedi, the whole Cantu bite sequence is sort of like, wait a minute, are we even good? Right. You know. Or mm-hmm. well, it 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 makes it so much more complex and i know a lot of people oh we could just we could we could transition into talking about the last jedi but (laughs) we could (laughs) but i do love the last jedi us too and um and 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 we we can and we will certainly discuss it at some point but um, at the risk of of getting a little a little too off topic, I'm gonna I'm gonna rein us back, but but just say yeah, I think that Last Jedi and Rogue One are the movies that really show loss and and kind of the reality of losing hope in this world and. And the other films, like, there are moments, but it's always overcome. But I don't know. Okay, so coming back to Return of the Jedi. Not The Last Jedi. Return of the Jedi. 
any kind of closing thoughts that we have about this. I just wanted to say, just to bring it back to wine real quick, I don't know why, but mm-hmm. but the wine that I think kind of in, that encapsulates this movie I, th- that comes to mind is Malbec, because Malbec is, for me personally, a wine that, like, I don't always love, but when it's really good, it's really good. And when a good winemaker makes it, it's really drinkable and enjoyable and really fun. If a bad winemaker makes it, it can be really bad. <laughs> and so I think I think that this is like this movie is a good Malbec. Um because mm-hmm. there's definitely the risk there's definitely the danger that it could not be good, but somehow it pulls itself together and comes back. Because also, quote unquote, the winemaker, usually there's a team of people involved in making a wine, just as there's a team of people involved, even if there's like a head, you know, person in charge, like George mm-hmm. Lucas. If George Lucas made wine, God forbid. <laughs> so I, I think he that's, might. He's got his fingers in a lot of pots. I he he probably has made wine before. <laughs> so I think that's a very good good pairing. Mm-hmm. I would suggest Riesling is a really good pairing okay. for this movie. Okay. Because there's there's always the danger that a Riesling can be too saccharine, mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. sweet, mm-hmm. and have no for substance sure. to for it. Sure. And this movie is just sharp enough in all the right places to make it really worthwhile. I'll also say that. Uh, my favorite moments of this film for many, many years were the fact that they, the moments where they introduced the other starfighters, so the A-wing and the mm-hmm. B-wing mm-hmm. are both introduced in this movie. And I was going to ask if you had a pairing for the B-wing, which is that weird, like, rotating cockpit crucifix Oh, yeah. Ship, you know, where they, yeah. like, they shift so they're sideways to go to right. on the bombing run, and then they shift back up. Oh, gosh, I'd have to, I'd have to think about it. Yeah. I'd have to think about it a little bit further. Maybe I will think about it, and future Emma will cut in here with a pairing for the B-wing. <laughs> Sounds good. Future Emma reporting for duty. I am going to pair a Grignolino with the B-Wing because they're both unusual and unexpected, but badass and serve their purpose well. How about you, Anthony? Is there any last thoughts, anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about? Um, I think that, I think you've summed up the movie rather well. I, I think that my... My one gripe with the movie is that it is five minutes too long Mm. because in my mind, the last scene, and I was very disappointed to find that this wasn't the last scene, is when he burns Vader's body. It's just Luke in the forest, alone, burning Vader's body. Mm. In my mind, I had conflated that with the final dance scene, which, like, why do we have to have a dance number at the end of this movie? (laughs) Like, I, I get that it's cathartic and I get that there has been a lot of loss and a lot of violence and like it is ni- it is emotionally nice. But like that moment of just like he is alone at the end, like he is alone at the beginning would have just been such a great way to wrap it up. Like he could have turned, seen the forest ghosts, uh, you know, cut to the stars on Endor and we're out. Um, but I think that. It's a really good encapsulation of the movie. It's a really good encapsulation of the saga that really this is the story about, you know, a boy and his dad. Yeah. Essentially. Right. Like, that's what these movies are. And you don't really get to see the full extent of it until the last moments he has with Vader and that last scene that he has. And it's just a great reminder of, like, what these movies are really what these movies really are. Mm hmm. 
And, mm-hmm. and that's what I love about them. Yeah. No, that's that's great. And that's that's I think that's a very nice note to end on. Um, to end or on. Oh, hey. I'll show myself out. <laughs> <laughs> but before we go, Anthony, do you have anything that you would like to share, plug, suggest that people check out? Um, sure. Well, I have my, my, if you are into Dungeons and Dragons, I have my Dungeon Master blog, spelltheory.com. You can find me at spelltheory on Twitter, and I am at facebook.com slash spelltheory. If you want to follow me, I do a lot of, uh, you know, custom item creations and D&D theory, if that is your thing. Uh, it is very niche, but it is very fun. I've been doing that for a few months now. Um, it's been awesome. We've been loving all yep. your posts. Oh, thank you. And... I actually have asked Anthony for his advice uh, as a, as a DM. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, well, and I'm happy to get it. Lots it. of our lot. I know for a fact that many of our listeners are Dungeons and Dragons players. So check out Spell Theory. There will be links in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Of course. And I think I think that's what we've got going. That's what I've got going on right now. Yeah, because after we uh, after we recorded our last episode, my episode of Jeopardy aired, and I think I oh, can say it right. now. My only episode of Jeopardy yeah. aired. <laughs> <laughs> we watched it, and we were delighted. Oh my gosh! And cheering for we're you the whole so time. So proud of you the whole time. Oh, thank you. And yeah. uh, one someone from my law school who I auditioned with uh, actually got on as well, and he uh, went on last week. And much like myself, he did very well. Up until Final Jeopardy, and then he lost in Final Ugh. Jeopardy, uh, and it was huge bummer. Hate to see it, but you know, I think it might just be a UCLA law curse. Hey, there you go, there, there you go. We're we're trying to get Winston to to audition for it at some point, but we'll we'll Please see. Please do keep an eye out for that online test. It yes. only happens like once every year, so okay. you gotta like you gotta catch it. And I think it's in like the first part of the year. All cool. right. Well, Anthony, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining us again and talking about these wonderful films. Um, let us not forget that that these are just absolutely delightful films, and uh, and and we love them. And so, may the force be with you, and also with you, as they say in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> and also, but only and in also, the original trilogy do they say it. And also, Catholic Church. Yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> Right. And also you having some. No, I know. And with your spirit. <laughs> yes, we're both big fans of John Mulaney. John Mulaney <laughs> and Star Wars meet. Oh my God, I want that so much. Cheers. 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 Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Sherjarko with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Sherjarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. 
Also, check out our merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.